My name is Ben Greenfield, and on this episode of the Ben Greenfield Life Podcast. So we're all in this sort of like 110 to 120 as your peak post-meal glucose. I like to stay about between 70 and 90 in between meals, like resting during the day and not really go above 120 after meals. And I like to go up and come down within two hours. And that will pretty much make me feel my best. Faith, family, fitness, health, performance, nutrition, longevity, ancestral living, biohacking, and a whole lot more. Welcome to the show. All right, so I just got back from a trip. My levels, blood glucose monitor, continuous blood glucose monitor is waiting for me. I slapped it on. It's on the back of my arm right now. I've been using this thing for two years. Total game changer. I'll put it on for about two weeks and then take a break for a month or two. Some people wear it all year round, but it gives you real-time feedback on your diet or your lifestyle or your exercise, anything, by using what's called a continuous glucose monitor. Now, poor glucose control is associated with a number of chronic conditions, not just diabetes, but also Alzheimer's and heart disease and stroke. It even affects your your day-to-day energy levels, your ability to control weight, your sexual function. So I started tracking my own glucose to learn more about not only what I should and shouldn't be eating, but how I should train, Uh, the things that drop my blood glucose, the things that raise my blood glucose. When I started as a Levels member, I thought I understand my metabolic health pretty well. It turns out, like most people, I didn't have that great of an idea about how some foods surprisingly were affecting me, like a steak spikes my blood sugar, cold bath decreases it, green beans spike my blood sugar, not so much with oatmeal. It's super weird. And everybody's different, which is why you really don't know unless you test. What you read in a magazine that's going to spike or control your blood sugar is not necessarily what's accurate for you personally. So if you want to try one of these continuous glucose monitors, also known as a CGM, you go to levels.link slash Ben. They got a really well-researched in-depth blog. I recommend checking out if you're just looking to learn more about topics like metabolic health, longevity, and nutrition. Very well-written. But levels.link slash Ben is where you can actually get one of these continuous glucose monitors for yourself. We are working with a new company that makes an amazing kids multivitamin. So if you're looking for something for your kid, but you have realized that most typical children's vitamins are basically candy in disguise. They got like two teaspoons of sugar, unhealthy chemicals, a bunch of gummy junk that growing kids should never eat is a problem. I'm always looking at these labels for my own kids and you know, in the past I've just fed them liver because I haven't been able to find a good multivitamin. But there's this company called Hia, H-I-Y-A. It's a pediatrician-approved, super-powered, chewable multi, right? Most children's vitamins have, again, like five grams of sugar, a couple teaspoons. That contributes to a variety of health issues, paradoxically. But Hia has zero sugar, zero gummy junk, non-GMO, vegan, dairy-free, allergy-free, gelatin-free, nut-free, So super safe for any kid who's sensitive to that kind of stuff. They formulated it with the help of a bunch of nutritional experts and physicians. It's a blend of 12 organic fruits and veggies. Then they supercharge it with 15 other essential vitamins and minerals like D, B12, C, zinc, folate. So it supports your child's immunity, energy, brain function, mood, concentration, teeth, bones, you name it. And the best part is my kids go ape nuts over this stuff. They're going to give all my listeners, whether you have a kid or maybe you just want an amazing multivitamin that tastes great, because I have to admit, I've snuck a few myself. They're going to give us all 50% off. That's pretty big. 50% off. It's your first order. 
Okay, to claim that, you go to hiahealth.com slash Ben, H-I-Y-A, health.com slash Ben. That'll automatically get your kids the full body nourishment that they really need to grow. Unless you've been hiding under a rock or something, you probably have heard about this thing, this trend in health called CGM. CGM stands for Continuous Glucose Monitoring. Continuous Glucose Monitoring. Like you might have seen me sometimes wearing a patch on my arm. Usually I put it on the back of my arm, even though I'll ask today's guest if that's a decent place to put her if I'm totally messing up. But anyways, it tracks my blood glucose like 24-7 all the time. You may have been to the pharmacy and seen those little blood glucose uh, pricks that you can get where you prick your finger and you bleed onto the little thing. This is just like doing that, but all the time, even though there might be some subtle nuances or differences, which I will also ask my guest about today. They're super useful because, you know, even if, even if you're not like diabetic, I think it's no secret that paying attention to your blood sugar is one of the most important things that you can do for your health. As a matter of fact, I'm convinced that paying attention to that Pay attention to your inflammation levels and paying attention to what's called your heart rate variability are, are possibly like three of the best things to track when it comes to keeping your finger on the pulse of your health. There's so many benefits to tracking blood sugar and so much I've learned over the past few years, but I haven't ever really done like a big podcast on all of the nitty gritty questions that I have about continuous glucose monitors. Like, for example, like I mentioned earlier, where do you put them? Like your arm, your stomach. What are some surprising things that you might not know that might spike your blood sugar? Like strangely enough for me, one thing I found was like green beans. Then it turns out I did a food allergy test. I'm actually like allergic to green beans, which is weird because that's like a slow carb, low carb food. You know, are there differences in accuracy between these different brands like the Dexcom or the Freestyle? Are there other things these things could potentially track besides blood glucose? What are some reasons that people who are healthy might still have high glycemic variability? You know, when is blood sugar going too high? You know, like, I don't know, maybe from a sauna or an exercise session, not an issue. And what do you need to be concerned about it? How soon should it come back down? Just like so many questions. So I decided I want to get somebody on the show who I could geek out on this stuff with. Fortunately, she's a doctor. I'm not a doctor. I just have the t-shirt. Her name is Casey Means. And you may have heard of her before if you have looked into CGMs because she's actually the chief medical officer of one of the top metabolic health tracking companies out there called Levels. Levels is kind of like this company that has a, an app that will allow you to go way beyond whatever the native plain Jane no frills app was that came with your continuous glucose monitor and allow you to do a ton of other stuff like run tests and, and get a lot more insight into glycemic variability and learn a lot more about your body. It's a pretty cool app. I, I have really, really enjoyed using it, learned a ton from it. Casey is the person who's kind of like the mastermind behind this in terms of advising levels. She guest lectures at Stanford. She's the associate editor of the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention. And uh, she kind of like lives her life uh, through the lens of trying to reverse the epidemic of preventable chronic disease in many cases by helping people control their blood sugar. And she is she's well-published, well-respected, and very well-known for being an expert in the whole continuous glucose monitoring space. So Casey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ben. I am so excited to have this conversation with you. Yeah, it should be pretty cool. And it, like, listen, I, I know, because I've heard you on other podcasts, and probably a lot of people are, are kind of sort of aware of this. Like, I don't think that 
we have to spend like an hour on this podcast telling people that controlling your blood sugar is a good idea, right? Or <laughs> tracking your blood sugar might be be handy for you to do. We could, but I want to dig into the stuff that uh, selfishly enough, I want to know about that maybe isn't asked enough from a blood sugar standpoint, if you're game. Is that cool? Absolutely. Okay. All right. So I guess my first question is, uh, and this this is alluding to something I already mentioned in the introduction, but are you wearing one of these things right now? Right this very second, I don't have one on because it actually expired yesterday. So I have to put a new one on today. If I could explain this to folks, it's like a sensor. You slap it on your body and it will stay active for a certain period of time. But I'll, I'll wear mine and then take it off. And after I've learned a whole bunch for a couple of weeks, put it back on a couple of months later, or perhaps when I'm having weird energy levels or weird sleep, I'll put it on just to see what's going on with my blood sugar. But if you were wearing one, Casey, where would you stick it for like ideal accuracy, the ideal combination of like accuracy and ability to engage in your your daily functions like workouts and things like that? I personally love it on the back of my upper arm. So this is a very standard place that you'll see a lot of people wearing it, like when you're just walking down the street. And so the reason I like it on the back of my arm is for a few reasons. I think just, just in terms of where the options are. So for the Freestyle Libre, which is one of the uh, main types of sensors, there's three main companies that make these sensors, which is Abbott, which is the Freestyle Libre. There's Dexcom that makes the G6 and there's Medtronic. The two sensors that Levels members use are the Freestyle Libre and the Dexcom G6. For the Freestyle Libre, it's approved for the back of the upper arm. Um, so that's really the place that they recommend wearing it. And for the Dexcom G6, they actually say that you can wear it on your upper arm, your abdomen, or your upper butt, basically. So on your on your haunches, which I have not heard of very many people doing, but you can. And the upper arm for me, I mean, frankly, one of the reasons is that I, I kind of like showing it off. <laughs> like, I think it looks cool. Yeah, it is kind and of a I conversation love, starter, isn't it? It's such a conversation starter. And it's I think it's becoming more and more a symbol of people sort of similar to wearing other wearables like an aura ring or an Apple watch. Like, it's a symbol of caring about your health and showing to people that that is, you know, something that you value. And I think it's kind of becoming a little bit of a fashion symbol in a way. And of course, on top of the CGM, we have the Levels Performance cover, which is a, a great cover that makes it essentially waterproof and sweatproof. And you're not going to catch it on a doorway as you're walking through and peel your sensor off, which can sometimes happen if you're not wearing the sticker. Yeah. Just in terms of the upper arm, there's a lot of ways, I think, to do it in a way that's most accurate and comfortable. I, I like to basically almost pull down on the area behind my tricep. So we're talking about like back of the arm, about two inches below the armpit crease. I kind of pull down on the fleshy, you know, area behind the tricep and try and get it in as much sort of like fleshy or fatty tissue as possible. So not right into the muscle. If I can avoid it for people who are super ripped, there sometimes isn't a lot of that tissue, but as much as you can kind of get it in the, in the sort of like fleshy or fattier tissue and not right in the muscle belly, that's going to be better from both the perspective of pain, but also I think for consistency of your readings. Okay. Yeah. I've, I run into that. I don't have a ton of fat on the back of my arm, but that, that's where I tend to put it. I, I find that just seems to stick the best there and, and stay the longest there. When you slap the sensor on, you know, you, you kind of like depress the button and this teeny, teeny, tiny, like smaller than a hair, like needle kind of goes deep into the tissue. How's it measuring 
in terms of like the the location of the sugar, if that makes sense, versus say if I were just like prick my finger and bleed onto one of those little strips, is it is it measuring it from the blood or is it measuring it from like inside the muscle or, or can you explain in, in layperson's terms how exactly it's it's gathering that sugar data? Yeah, absolutely. So the way it works, like you said, there's this little filament that goes into the skin. You actually do apply this with a little device, an applicator that does have a needle. And all that needle is doing is actually pushing like this hair, like, like kind of like dental floss type material under the skin. Then that needle immediately retracts. So there's no needle that actually stays in the body, nothing rigid, which I think is definitely reassuring to know that there's not some like rigid thing that's sticking in there, but that's sticking out of the bottom of the plastic sensor that's affixed to the outside of your skin. So it's almost like a big thumbtack, but the the tack part is actually flexible on that filament that goes under the skin, which for the, for the freestyle Libre is actually only four millimeters long. So it is so, 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 so tiny. The Dexcom G6 filament is a bit longer. I don't know the exact length, but probably about, I would say a centimeter and a half or so. So it's a little bit deeper that filament that's under the skin is is sitting in what's called the interstitial fluid. So not actually measuring blood, not in a blood vessel. It's in this sort of space between cells. And the filament is coated with an enzyme called glucose oxidase that's actually doing a chemical reaction, like an actual lab test in your arm automatically every 15 minutes or so and sending that information to your smartphone. And so what happens is that basically glucose reacts with this enzyme that's coating the filament and actually converts to hydrogen peroxide, which creates an electrical signal that's then basically registered as a glucose concentration. And I think one of the reasons I like to, you know, not get it right in the muscle, if I can avoid it, um, is that I do think that, and this is, I can't verify this, but this is just my hunch from wearing one for about three years that sometimes if you get it right in the muscle, there can maybe be some more like bleeding and inside very small amount. And then that can maybe interfere with some of the signal. So kind of just getting it into like anything that's a bit flushier and really kind of getting into like skin subcutaneous tissue. So things can be different, you know, if you're sensor to sensor, each sensor kind of can read a little bit differently um, and different placement. You can sometimes see differences. So I just try and keep it as consistent as possible in terms of my placement sensor to sensor, you know, not kind of move it around my arm. Okay. Now, now, you know, some of these sensors, like when you open up the app, it says you could calibrate, which means that Mm -hmm. you can take your blood glucose reading from, from your fingertip and match it up to what it has on a sensor, I, I suppose. But if your fingertip is measuring your blood glucose and the sensor is measuring more like the glucose in this interstitial fluid, are they going to be the same? The, the reason I ask this is that from what I understand, like glucose goes from, from your blood vessels and your capillaries first and then into your interstitial fluid. So technically, if it was like high in the blood it might still be low in the interstitial fluid or vice versa. So, so why is it that you'd calibrate by using the blood? Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. So prior to CGMs being these devices that so many people with diabetes are using, and now that people are using more for the general wellness market, people were pricking their fingers. And that is a actually using similar technology of glucose oxidase reactions, but using blood to do so. And like you said, 
once you digest, you know, carbohydrates, they go into your bloodstream. And then from the bloodstream, they will then sort of seep into the interstitial fluid. So you can think of, and, and the concentrations between the interstitial fluid and the blood are very, very similar, but it takes time for it to get out of the blood. So you can think of the interstitial fluid readings, like on a CGM as just phase shifted somewhere between like maybe five to 15 minutes into the future. Like for instance, if you were, if you just ate a high carb meal, and you have a quickly changing glucose in in the bloodstream, that's where you might see like quite a big difference between what's in your blood and what's in your interstitial fluid because it's it's going up, it's changing okay. very, very quickly. If you're just fasting and your blood sugar has been the same for like an hour, then your interstitial fluid should be pretty similar to what's in the blood. So things that can make the difference between between what's in the blood and what's in the interstitium different is if glucose is changing rapidly. So then you might see what's on your CGM essentially be maybe 15 minutes delayed from what's in your blood. So if you're just like actively pricking your finger and checking your sensor after a meal, the other things that can make it inaccurate is actually just the the first day of the sensor. So both the Freestyle Libre and the Dexcom, the manufacturers mentioned that like day one can be a little bit off. So I don't actually put much stock in my readings in the first like 24 to 36 hours, I will take stock in the Delta between like the beginning of the meal and after the meal, but the actual raw number, I I don't really take much stock into that until about 24 to 36 hours when I know that it's going to be a bit more precise and all the sensors are factory calibrated. So none of them actually require calibration, meaning that for them to be accurate, you don't actually have to prick your finger and put that into the app for the CGM to calibrate it. However, the Dexcom G6 has the functionality to allow you to do that, which means that you can take your little finger prick glucometer, prick your finger, put that into the Dexcom G6 app, and it will actually essentially adjust what your CGM readings are. Again, that's not required for it to work properly, but it may make the accuracy a little bit better. But okay. this, the companies have, they, they've both studied um, the, in, like, basically what is the level of inaccuracy in these compared to blood? And for both the Freestyle Libre and the Dexcom, it's about 9% difference from blood on average, which means that if you're doing gold standard, which is like a venous plasma glucose measurement compared to CGM readings, it's a 9% uh, MARD, which is mean absolute okay. relative difference for for both devices, which, you know, they, they were able to get FDA approval with that. And that's pretty standard across wearables. And that that's good enough essentially for someone with diabetes to do things like manage insulin. So I think, you know, just knowing that there, any tool is going to have some inaccuracy and a 9% is pretty reasonable, I would say. Okay. Got it. So do you, do you think that like out of the Dexcom versus the freestyle versus the Medtronic one is the best, like obviously there's differences between all of them, but, but is one just considered like gold standard? You know, there really isn't, um, a reputation of one being the gold standard. I'd say in terms of market share and you know, what, what customers tend to really like, I would say the freestyle Libre and the Dexcom G6 are the ones that I, I turn to the most. Um, but to be honest, so I have access to both, of course, you know, being part of levels and I honestly flip flop back and forth between the two of them. I will say, so the Freestyle Libre, um, it is using what's called near field communication, which means that you take your phone and you actually hold it up to the sensor and scan it to transfer the data from the sensor to the phone. 
And then the Dexcom G6 is Bluetooth. So it actually just streams straight to your phone. So one thing, for instance, like if I'm going on a wilderness trip or something like that, and I really don't want to look at my screen very often, and I don't want to be kind of interfacing with a device, I'll actually wear the Dexcom G6 because I know it's just going to stream the data straight to my phone. And that's, that's awesome. I don't have to basically interact with the phone as much. I could just look at the end of the day and see all the data on the flip side. If I'm in the real world and, you know, not backpacking or something like that, I actually get a lot of benefit from scanning the phone to my sensor. Cause it actually keeps me almost like more in touch with this process. And it's kind of, it kind of keeps me more thinking about glucose throughout the day. Yeah. And so I actually kind of like the process of scanning. You only have to do it once every eight it. hours. Cause yeah. So that, so it really depends on the person and kind of like what you're, what you're looking for. Um, but both the freestyle Libre and the Dexcom, I find to be very, very accurate compared to my blood glucose on my finger pricks. I will say the freestyle Libre tends to run low and the Dexcom tends to run high. And that's, again, not, it's kind of anecdotal, but we obviously have seen a lot of members and gotten a lot of support emails from members. And that is the trend that we see. So like if I, let's say I prick my finger and it's 85 milligrams to deciliter, my freestyle Libre will often be reading like 70 or 72 versus if I'm pricking my finger and it's 85 and I'm wearing a Dexcom G6, it'll often be reading like 95 or a hundred. And so I just know that I don't, you know, I, I think that you just have to kind of know that there is going to be this slight difference, like from, there is some baseline level of inaccuracy. And I think that what that gets to is knowing that the main purpose of these tools is to understand trends throughout the day and the Delta between pre-meal and post-meal. Those things tend to be fairly accurate. You know, like if I, go up 50 points after breakfast, whether yeah. I'm with the Freestyle Libre or the Dexcom, it's going to give me that same information. I totally get what you're saying. You're, you're looking for a pattern either way. If it goes up, it goes up, it goes down, it goes down. It might not be the exact number that that's as accurate as you want to be. But as long as you're able to pay attention to trends, you pretty much know what's going on. You know that Precisely. whatever, this cold shower made it go down and that meal with it steak and potatoes or whatever made it go up. So, so yeah, I, t I totally get what you're saying now. Now, Precisely. you know, regarding like the difference between the sensors, one thing that I'm often asked about is because you're wearing this piece of like electricity on your body all day long, whether people who are like electro hypersensitive or concerned about dirty electricity or anything like that need to need to pay attention to. And there's very little data out there about this, I found one YouTube video where someone was actually using one of those those uh, scanners to test the EMF levels mm -hmm. of a Dexcom G6. Now, I'll, I'll link to it. If, if folks go to bengreenfieldlife.com slash glucose, that's where I'm going to pull the show notes. And I'll, I'll show you that video. And what you're looking for, ideally, from a health standpoint, is you want levels, if you're measuring milliwatts per meter squared, which is kind of like the gold standard, it'd be less than one. And that video, it was like half that, like it, it was, it was really low. And then a lot of these things will use what's called a low radio frequency emission, meaning like a, a cell phone will put out like a hundred milliwatts and any of these glucose testers that at least the ones I could find, like the Dexcom and the, and the freestyle, they're like on average, like 4,000 to 5,000 times weaker than that. 
So, I mean, like doesn't even touch the equivalent of having a cell phone and even a cell phone in airplane mode in your pocket. So I don't think that's that's something people need to be concerned about. But have you ever thought about that or, or do you have any additional ideas in terms of the EMF dirty electricity piece? Just like you said, it is very understudied. Um, I have dug deep into this like you have and have really mostly found like what you're talking about, which is like blog posts of people testing this thing on on their own YouTube videos, things like that. I, I came across, I think, what was the same source that you were talking about, which is that like the 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 Dexcom, it was like 4,000 times less than like a cell phone call or something yeah. like that. I have no idea if that is accurate, but you know, I, I'm hoping that it is. And I think I think someone should do that study. I think it'd be fascinating. Anecdotally, I did um, go to my acupuncturist uh, for some back pain a couple years ago, and it was on my left side where my sensor was. And and he's like, you know, I, he, he said something about how, like, I think you should think about the fact that you're wearing the sensor on your arm and it could be, you know, impacting your energy flow through this part of your body. And so that's always stuck with me of like, okay, like this is a device in your body. Your body responds to something that is obviously in it. But that type of, you know, study has not been has not been done yeah in a formal way yeah i'm not concerned at all like like with the values again like if you if you own a phone you're even if your phone's in airplane mode you're, you're, you're getting exposed to a lot more from that alone so i wouldn't be as concerned about that but it's kind of related to another question i wanted to ask you because um look i won't beat around the bush here i have a dexcom and i've been using the dexcom for like six weeks i, I switched from the freestyle libre to the dexcom so far, I've had three transmitters fail. I've gotten no data over six weeks, aside from the very first day I had the second one on because they keep having to send me replacements. And so I am just like racking my brain around what would cause like a sensor or a transmitter to repeatedly fail. Like, is it because I wear it in the sauna? Is it because like I've got like a pulsed electromagnetic field therapy thing that'll do therapy on sometimes is it something in the water in my house because the same thing has happened to to another guy who works with me at my house he's got a dexcom his has failed twice in the past few weeks so i'm curious like what would cause a, a transmitter or a sensor to fail so much is it, is it something that they're getting exposed to do you think i think it's possible so so one thing to know is that the operating temperature of these devices is 50 degrees fahrenheit to 113 degrees fahrenheit and so if you're going far above that, which I miss, you know, of course you are in a sauna or a cold plunge, it's going to go outside the range of the operating temperature. And so that could very well be leading to a sensor issue. There's a lot of other things as well. I, I think that one thing I've noticed, again, this is my own personal experience, not, not something that's in their, their, you know, official documentation, but if I put the sensor in a place where it happens to bleed more, so Every once in a while, I'll apply a sensor and I just, some blood will leak around the sensor. This is very rare and definitely don't want to put people off from these. They typically like are totally painless. You don't feel it going on and there's no blood. But every once in a while, I mean, I've worn probably a hundred of these at this point, there'll be a little bit of blood that like comes out of the center of the Freestyle Libre or around the sensor if it's the Dexcom. And I've noticed that when that happens, often the sensor fails. And I think it's because the blood is coating the filament inside and it can't do the reading. Hmm. Um, and so that is why I've become a bit more careful and precise about where I put the sensor and how I apply it. So one 
tiny tip with the Dexcom is that, you know, the filament, when you take the sensor off, you can see that the filament goes at about a 45 degree angle out of the bottom. The Freestyle Libre, the, the filament comes out at 90 degrees from the sensor. The Dexcom G6 comes out at about 45 degrees from the sensor. So I make sure to apply the Dexcom G6 in a way that I know the filament is going to be going parallel to the long dimension of my arm and not like sideways. Cause if it's sideways, I'm assuming hmm. it's going to hit the muscle more. Like it's basically okay. going to like, so that's yeah. one thing. And I, I think that when you hit the muscle, it does bleed more. And so that's one thing I really try and avoid applying in a way that it's going to. And, and it's actually one thing you could try then is trying the butt, <laughs> like where there may be a little bit more tissue. Yeah, That's a good point. I haven't tried alternate locations yet. One other thing to mention though, is that a couple times my sensors has failed is when I was on an extended fast. So when I did a, I was doing a five day fast a couple years ago and I, my blood glucose obviously went down during the fast and my freestyle Libre was reading like in the forties. Of course, my finger prick glucose was still in like the mid sixties and I was asymptomatic. So I wasn't too worried about it. But once it started hitting the forties, like regularly on the freestyle Libre and again, the freestyle Libre tends to skew low, especially if your blood sugar is actually low at the time. So if you look at the accuracy curve for the freestyle Libre, it's most accurate around like the 80 to 200 milligram per deciliter range. If your blood glucose is actually that when you get into the extremes of the low, like if your blood sugar is actually below 80, the sensor is going to start to get more inaccurate. Like that mar that difference between blood and sensor is, is greater. So if you're in a fast and your glucose actually is low in your blood, it could look even more inaccurate on the sensor. So the sensor was reading the forties and then it just stopped basically. And I think the sensor probably has some sort of algorithm built in that basically says if it's reading values that are essentially incompatible with, with life, it's probably broken and it just stops itself. So that was kind of, that's happened to me now on too fast where my, okay. my blood sugar actually did go low. The sensor read it even lower and then it stopped. Yeah. For, well, for, for you, what would, what would like really low be just like curiosity? Like in my actual capillary glucose or an in interstitial fluid? I guess in the interstitial fluid that the sensor's reading. Like sixties. Okay. That's not super low. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, cause I don't do like full keto all the time. And so I would say that what? like my you baseline sinner. glucose I know, gosh, but I would say my, my, my glucose, um, generally in my, if I'm finger pricking during the day in between meals would be around 72 to 85 or so. And then their sensor could be reading high sixties or, 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 you know, it could be a sensor that's super accurate and actually reading within one or two milligrams per deciliter of the blood. But, but that's where I tend to sit during the, the day. Um, and so the sensor could read if it's a freestyle Libre between, high sixties and, and eighties. Do you think there's that much of a difference between sitting and standing, by the way? Like, have you noticed that? I think so. I mean, I think when I'm, when I'm working at my standing desk and I'm always moving my feet around, I've always got music on on my headphones. I, I do think it keeps things just a bit more stable during the day when I'm, you know, when you're sitting 
all day. You're essentially, there's no real glucose sink. Like muscle is the most incredible glucose sink. And if you're using it even marginally, like even just gently walking or bouncing around on your feet a little bit at your standing desk, like you're activating huge muscle groups and they all, you know, take up glucose. So I think any even marginal amount of movement makes a big difference. I agree. My mine's always consistently lower when I'm standing. Of course, when I'm walking on my you know desk treadmill or I've got a little under the desk, little like bicycle type of thing. Anytime I'm doing anything like that, it's, it's lower, which seems intuitive, but, but even just something as simple as standing instead of sitting actually does make a pretty, like a bigger difference than I would have thought. Like it's on average about five points lower if I'm standing versus sitting. So it's, it's, it's pretty significant. Okay. So the other, the other quick thing that I, that I wanted to mention is we were talking about sensors failing. Like if you don't know the answer to this, that's fine. But this, this whole idea of like these, uh, these biohacks that produce electricity, like infrared lights or pulsed electromagnetic field therapy, you know, vibration platforms, things like that. Like, mm-hmm. have you ever come across anything that, that would for sure cause a sensor to fail that you know of? Not yet, have not come across that. But I bet we we just launched a few months ago, and so we're going to get a lot more you know people in the program. And I yeah. I would be so curious if this stuff starts coming up as the volume gets higher. Yeah. What do you mean you just launched a couple of months ago? We were in a closed beta for about two years, so we were you know basically refining the product, growing our operations, and then this summer we we've sort of more publicly launched, and so you know anyone can kind of come and, and get the product. And so we'll just start to see, pick up more of these things as, uh, as more people use the product and try different, try different biohacks and experiments out. But, but one thing we have seen and definitely have, have heard about is this idea of like interfering substances with the sensors. So the, and the manufacturers talk about this, but there are a few medicines and supplements that that are known to actually interfere with the chemical reaction on the sensor. So the big ones are vitamin C and uh, salicylic acid. So what's in aspirin. Okay. So with these, and it's dose dependent. And when you look at the research, it really seems like you have to be taking very high doses of these things for it to be a problem. Wait, I don't, I don't understand. What would they do exactly? Well, with vitamin C, for instance, there's some thought that it actually interferes with the uh, with the actual chemical, like the glucose oxidase oh, enzyme. Oh, weird. And okay. so it it actually will read much higher. So people hmm. have reported like being in the 300s if they take like two grams of, of vitamin C. Oh, wow. If people are taking like normal, so so this would be relevant to someone who's and probably relevant to your audience, like people who are doing an IV type vitamin C therapy or okay. or taking just a high oral dose. You might just see like a if your glucose goes up to like 300 or 400, that might be why. And then similar to salicylic, so salicylic acid is like aspirin and some skincare products have it that above about 650 milligrams. And the average pill is usually a a 325 milligram aspirin. So if you're taking like stacking these doses and taking a lot, it could affect the sensor. And then hydroxyurea is another one that is thought to potentially, um, impact the readings. And then Tylenol used to have an issue with the sensors above about a thousand milligrams, but now both manufacturers advertise that there is no more interference with Tylenol, but something to just keep in mind in case someone's on like, you know, post-surgery or something and taking a lot of it. And if they see the readings, but certainly salicylic acid and vitamin C at high doses may affect the sensor and actually dehydration. Um, if someone is really dehydrated, it can, it can lead to falsely 
either elevated or or low reading. So just want to okay. make sure that you're 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 hydrated. Okay. And hydroxyurea, that's that's like a pharmaceutical drug, right? Hydroxyurea, you'd have to get through uh, a per a prescription. Okay. Yeah. It's it's like it treats uh, cancer. Okay, got it. And and by the way, you mentioned that you had been in closed beta, and now you guys at levels are letting other people in. But I, I should clarify because I I, th- I think I understand the answer to this. But if you don't have diabetes or or a chronic disease related to blood sugar, you can still get a sensor and get the app. But it's just that it's out of pocket and insurance won't cover. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. And Levels right now is actually exclusively a wellness product. So it's not actually intended for any disease management or even disease prevention. It's meant for people who are you know, trying to live their healthiest lives, trying to understand their bodies better to basically have this incredible data stream that helps them understand really for the first time how food is affecting their health uh, in real time and in a closed loop biofeedback way. And so, so what Levels has done is take this what was traditionally exclusively a medical device only used in the clinical setting and and brought this to a mainstream sort of consumer audience of people who are optimizers or are interested in general health and wellness. Um, Because of course, there's this huge, huge desire, not only amongst people who are interested in like quantified self or wearables, but just generally people who have been struggling with trying to find the right diet for them, figure out what, you know, how exercise affects their health, how sleep deprivation and stress affect their health to really be able to have extra granularity into that. So yes, the people who are using levels are people that actually do not have a clinical diagnosis and are using this for wellness purposes. If you enjoy using nicotine, you got to check out this company called Lucy. All right, look, I know we're, we're, we're all adults here and we like the focus and relaxation and this blend of clean energy that you get from something like nicotine, uh, but we also know that cigarettes are bad for you. So if you enjoy using nicotine and you want a clean nicotine product, not full of a bunch of artificial hoo-hahs, then this is the stuff for you. It's called Lucy, L-U-C-Y. They're at lucy.co. The promo code is BEN20. They have gum. I like the pomegranate flavor. They have lozenges. I like the cherry ice flavor. They have the little pouches that you put in your mouth. I like the peppermint flavor for those. The promo code is BEN20. If you use that, that will give you the 20% discount at checkout. It does contain nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. I'm supposed to tell you that. That's me being responsible. I love it. I chew a piece in the mid-morning and a piece in the mid-afternoon or a piece in the mid-morning and a lozenge in the mid-afternoon. So I cut myself off at about two, maximum three per day. But oh my gosh, it just, it freaking works. So it's called Lucy. Lucy Lucy.co, use promo code BEN20 and you can experience what clean nicotine actually feels like. All right, so whole body wellness is obviously a huge part of my life. I'm always looking for new ways to make feeling great be easier. And one of my non-negotiables is my daily dose of red light therapy. For years now, I've been using Juve light therapy devices to do that all year long. I love it because they're non-invasive. They're simple to use. No hassle with complex monitors and cables and shoving stuff into orifices. You just flip them on. They can boost cellular energy. They can heal damaged cells under oxidative stress. There's many other clinically proven benefits to red light therapy, even testosterone production for guys. It's pretty crazy. Juve makes the good stuff. Medical grade components, third-party testing, safety marks from the nationally recognized testing laboratories. It's a safe and reliable product, and they're very powerful, so you don't have to turn on the red light for like an hour and stand there. It's like 10 
maximum 20 minutes a day. You're good to go. They even have a little wireless handheld device called the Juve Go. That's great for, well, you guessed it, being on the go. So go to juve.com slash Ben and use my code Ben to your qualifying order. That's J-O-O-V-V.com slash Ben. Apply my code Ben to your order, and they're going to offer all my listeners an exclusive discount. So J-O-O-V-V.com slash Ben. So you probably know that your body is mostly water, but your body is also 50% amino acids, which are the building blocks of life and proteins and are essential for health and fitness. So no matter what you do or how you like to move or whatever you do to stay fit, amino acids are hyper essential. And that's why this stuff called Keon Aminos is like my Swiss army knife for supplementation. I drink them or just dump the powder straight into my mouth because I'm weird like that every day for energy, for muscle, for recovery from hungry. I have a scoop and they just, they crush appetite. Amazing for supporting sleep. Even if you haven't had a big dinner, uh, they help to support muscle gain and weight loss. I mean, over 20 years of clinical research behind these aminos. They got the highest quality ingredients, no fillers, no junk, rigorous quality testing. They taste amazing with all natural flavors. So if you want to naturally boost energy, build lean muscle, enhance athletic recovery, the list goes on and on. That's why I call them the Swiss Army Knife. You got to get Keon Aminos. You can get 20% off of monthly deliveries and 10% off of any one-time purchase if you use my code. And it's super simple. GetKeon.com slash Ben Greenfield. That's GetKeon.com slash Ben Greenfield. And that'll get you hooked up with my fundamental supplement for fitness, Keon Aminos. One other question regarding like the logistics of this, then I want to kind of ask you some question about numbers and stuff, but you talk about putting on the back of the arm or for me, I guess now my butt, the package, when I get my levels package, it's got like these little black stickers. It's almost like kinesio tape, but it's in the shape of the sensor, like whether it's the Dexcom or the, or the freestyle and you slap it over there. You think that's enough to keep it on? Or are there other tips that you have for, for keeping it stuck to the skin, whether it be like some kind of adhesive or glue or, or anything along those lines that you found that people really benefit from in terms of the stickiness? Great question. So what you're talking about, these patches and these stickers, these are the levels performance covers. And so these are intended to go over the sensor to make them more waterproof, more sweat proof. And like, again, prevent them from being just dislodged when you're the, the, the one that always happens is when you're walking through a doorway and you catch your arm and it just peels your sensor that off. Totally and you're like, oh my God. Yes. Yes. So the, 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 the sticker basically prevents that from ever happening. Um, and, but I do think there are several things that you can do to actually improve the likelihood of the sticker staying on for the full 10 days of its Dexcom or two weeks if it's the freestyle Libre. So some of the key things for me, I always put it on after a shower when I've really gotten the oil off my arm. Um, I think oil on the skin can just, will totally prevents the adhesive from working properly. So I'll often use like a, um, a Dr. Bronner's cast style soap, which like, I feel like really gets you like squeaky clean and really gets oil off and use that. I'll use a little bit of an exfoliator, you know, like a, like a Luther or something on my arm, dry off the skin completely and then use alcohol. And sometimes what I'll do again, to get more oil off there, we, there are alcohol swabs in the kit, but sometimes I'll actually just take a bottle of isopropyl alcohol and put it on like a cotton ball and really, really like get any oil off the skin. I have found that that makes a really big difference hmm. with having 
the adhesive stay on. Okay. And then there's other, there's other like little medical grade stickies that you can like, um, like fluids that you can put on your arm that make the skin more tacky before you put the patch on. I don't think those are necessarily fully necessary unless you're doing like extreme sweaty or sauna stuff. I was just traveling and was doing some sauna every day. Uh, and my sensor did, unfortunately, just like kind of, I've had a sensor pop off in a sauna. I've had a sensor just like fly off in a Bikram yoga class. And so this, the heavy, heavy, heavy duty sweat and heat definitely can loosen that adhesive. So if I were to do that again, if I knew I was going to be doing hot yoga or going in a sauna, I might use that medical grade, like sticky stuff, which you can get on Amazon. And I'm actually forgetting what the name of that stuff is called, but we could link it in the show notes. It's like a skin adhesive. I've gotten it before. It's like tacky skin, something, but I'll, I'll find it and, and, and put a link for people who want the extras who are super active or doing a, I don't know, a Spartan race with your glucose monitor. And I'll, I'll put it at bangreenfieldlife.com slash chest, uh, glucose. Okay. I want to talk numbers a little bit. I want to talk numbers. So basically if, if you're testing, do you think there's for the lion's share of people, like a really good average blood glucose level that you should be looking at during the day. And th this might be a super simple answer. I don't know. And then on average, how much should it rise after your basic meal? And then how soon should it drop back down to normal? I realize that might be kind of a basic question, but I just want to make sure we establish numbers here. I hate to say it, but it's unfortunately not a basic question because the okay. research on this has basically not been done, but I'll unpack what we do know about numbers. Okay. There's just, unfortunately, it's not like a, oh, this is the exact number because, you know, you have to remember like the way that we have traditionally approached blood glucose values is all through the standpoint of essentially buckets of whether you're non-diabetic, pre-diabetic or have type two diabetes. So those are the categories that the ADA has put forth. If you're less than hundred milligrams per deciliter for your fasting glucose, you're non-diabetic. If you're between hundred and 125, you're pre-diabetic. If you're above 125, you have type two diabetes. And so it's, you're in these buckets and, and that's honestly not really helpful for the type of person who's trying to keep optimal levels to make sure that they're, you know, preventing chronic disease and hopefully not moving down the trajectory of metabolic dysfunction. Cause you have to remember, and I'm sure many of your listeners know this, like once your fasting blood sugar has gotten up to a hundred or, or reaches the pre-diabetes threshold, mm -hmm. There's evidence to suggest that actually metabolic dysfunction has been going on for like a very, very long time as your glucose has slowly risen throughout the years and probably decades from like what would be probably optimal for fasting glucose between about 70 and 80 up to a hundred. And there's evidence. There was a paper in the Lancet that showed that insulin resistance, you know, the process that leads to dysfunctional fasting glucose levels, really the root cause of these glucose levels being, you know, higher than they should be is starting over a decade before our glucose numbers actually start rising. And we're really missing that early period of dysfunction, mostly because we don't actually check fasting insulin in our standard medical practice, which is a huge problem with the conventional medical system. And, and everyone should know what their fasting, I'm sorry, fasting insulin levels. We don't, we don't check those. And so insulin is probably starting to rise many, many, many years before our fasting glucose starts to rise. So that's a very important biomarker to, you know, ask your doctor for, and we really want our fasting insulin to be below 10, ideally between about two and six. And that's something we can track before our fasting glucose even starts to go off, off the rails. With all that said, 
your question was more about like, what is a, what is a good average glucose level and what is a good post meal glucose level? Again, the ADA doesn't tell us this because they're only concerned with whether we're below a hundred for our fasting glucose. But there's been several science, like scientific papers that have been published where they basically take in large groups of non-diabetic, generally healthy individuals, put continuous glucose on monitors on them for periods of a few days to a few weeks, and just looked at what their glucose actually does. And so what these studies tell us, if you look at all the research together, is that average 24-hour glucose levels in these healthy populations wearing CGMs are between about 84 and 104 milligrams per deciliter. 84 and 104. Yeah. And I, I'm summarizing okay. about six to seven papers that that basically have all the populations fall between that that range of essentially mean 24-hour glucose levels for a healthy population wearing CGM. So that's, does that mean that that's optimal? Still hard to know, right? But this is a healthy population. So that's a good gauge. And then I think one other thing to think about with average glucose is that average glucose is of course going to factor in what your sort of baseline level is in between meals and overnight, but it also factors in those post-meal elevations. So if we're talking about like, okay, I'm in between meals. I haven't eaten for three hours. I'm not going to be eating for three hours. What do I want my glucose level to be? It might be even a little bit lower than that average glucose level because, you know, that's obviously incorporating, um, the 24 hour pattern. So I like to stay between about 70 and 90 for my resting glucose in between meals after I've come down from a meal and sort of what I like to see overnight. And, um, and that actually, there is some research to suggest that might be normal. There's one study that was looking at normal weight, young, non-diabetic adults, and they looked at pre-meal glucose levels. So what was their glucose right before they ate? And on average, it was between 72 and 90 milligrams per deciliter. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's a pretty fair, like thing to shoot for, for pre-meal. Then if you're talking about post-meal glucose levels, which is obviously something that people care a lot about, yeah. If again, we look at the ADA criteria for what should your glucose levels be after a meal, it's very hard to interpret. They're looking at, they're, they basically say that two hours after a meal, you want to be below 140 milligrams per deciliter. So you eat, you go up, you come down. And if you're below 140 milligrams per deciliter, two hours after a meal or an oral glucose tolerance test, which is like a drink of glucose then you're categorized as non-diabetic. I personally think that's a ridiculously lenient number. Like if you're up in the 140s, two hours after a meal, that is very, very high. I like to, first of all, not even go up to above 140 after a meal, but go up and then come down with within those two hours and be back down to my like 70 to 90 resting glucose you know, within two hours after a meal. So I think that's highly lenient and it's okay. not really a great target. We've actually, so again, going back to the literature, if you look at those studies of people wearing CGMs, healthy non-diabetic individuals, they basically say that peak glucose, so not at two hours, but actually their peak glucose, which generally happens between 45 minutes and an hour after meal is typically on average between 99 and 137 milligrams per deciliter. So that's like they go up, they peak between 99 and 137 milligrams per deciliter, and then they come down within about two hours. We have actually surveyed our advisors. Our advisory board is just an incredibly credible group of, of thought leaders like Mark Hyman, Dom D'Agostino, Sarah Gottfried, Molly Maloof about what their 
optimal ranges after meals are. And we actually get an even tighter view. So Dr. Mark Hyman recommends that glucose should not rise above 120 milligrams per deciliter after meals. Uh, Dr. Molly Maloof says that most healthy is less than 110 after meals. Dom says less than 120. And Dr. Sarah Gottfried says less than 115 milligrams per deciliter. So we're all in the sort of like 110 to 120 as your peak post-meal glucose. So just Mm -hmm. to summarize all that, I like to stay about between 70 and 90 in between meals, like resting during the day and not really go above 120 after meals. And I like to come, go up and come down within two hours. And that will pretty much make me feel my best. Okay. Got it. That's super helpful. Now in people who eat a low carb diet or people who are keto, I think this flies under the radar. And I'd I'd love to hear your take on this. There's this phenomenon, and I guess what it's called is adaptive glucose sparing. Meaning like if you eat a low carb diet, you actually develop like this, this insulin resistance because essentially your muscles prefer to use fat as a fuel, right? So they're resisting the action of insulin to bring sugar into the cells for energy because they don't necessarily need as much sugar. Thus, the sugar in the bloodstream stays elevated. So paradoxically, somebody could be eating it like a low-carb ketogenic diet and their average might be 90 to 100, whereas that same person, if they weren't eating a low-carb or keto diet, they might be more like 80 to 90 simply because the muscles are using the fat. So it stays a little bit, the sugar stays a little bit higher in the bloodstream. And then furthermore, it might not be as much of an issue for chronic disease if that is the case, because that person who's following the low carb or ketogenic diet is so insulin sensitive that the high blood glucose is not necessarily associated with with insulin resistance or, or, or very high levels of insulin or, or too much stress in the pancreas. Have, have you come across that phenomenon at all? Is there anything to it? Yeah, this is a fascinating, fascinating topic. This paradoxical rise in blood glucose on a low carb diet. And I'd say the person who's really the expert on this is one of our advisors, Dr. Ben Bickman. And he actually has a name for this, which is called reverse metabolic inflexibility. Reverse metabolic inflexibility. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So, and we can link to a blog post on this that he's written for the levels blog, but it's really fascinating. And it's mostly what you would see in like a long-term keto diet and not in everyone. And it may, I think it's in part due to what you're saying is that you, you know, the average American is stuck in a glucose burning mode. And when you shift the body to being almost exclusively in a fat burning mode as a result of low insulin levels, which is a healthy state, your body is less responsive to insulin because it's not using it much. And so it may take longer for a glucose load with a meal to clear. And this, this may also have to do with the hormone glucagon. So glucagon um, is a, is a hormone that antagonizes the actions of insulin. So insulin is a glucose lowering hormone and glucagon is a glucose raising hormone through gluconeogenesis in the liver and then glycogenolysis. So breaking down glycogen into glucose and then making glucose from other substrates in the liver. And basically if you are on a long-term low carbohydrate diet, you may end up driving up glucagon levels because your body's essentially being stimulated to make glucose because you're not consuming glucose. 
and also dietary protein stimulates glucagon. And since a low carb diet is going to have probably higher ratio of protein, you may be stimulating more glucagon. So there may be an element of the body actually just responding to the fact that you're consuming low exogenous carbohydrates by stimulating hormone. That's going to bring glucose back up a little bit. Hmm. And then, and that's of course in the context of super low insulin levels because you're on a super low carb diet. So then the question is in the context of low insulin levels, is this slightly higher glucose a problem? Yeah. The answer to that is not known. However, I will say that Ben Bickman, I don't want to speak for him, but I think feels that the physiology is very different than normal hyperglycemia. And it's probably not something that people should worry too much about if their glucose is just slightly bumped up, you know, 10, 10 milligrams per deciliter, for instance, on average in the context of very, very low insulin levels. Yeah. I mean, my, my for sure tend to trend a little bit high if I'm being super strict on carbohydrates. But again, I, I think it's a non-issue. Obviously these are, these are glucose levels that aren't necessarily caused by, you know, face feeding with sugar and, and high starches all the time. So I, I personally don't think it's as much of an issue and, uh, would, would, probably tend to agree with, with, with Ben Bickman on, on his whole take on that. So maybe I'll include a link to a helpful article about that uh, and, and kind of an explanation of it in the show notes at bengreenfieldlife.com slash glucose. All right, let's talk about some fun stuff. Obviously built into the levels app is the ability for people to run experiments. Like what happens if I eat oatmeal versus eggs for breakfast or cold shower versus hot tub, like all sorts of things. So obviously you guys have collected some data and what I'm curious about is like most people know, oh, if you walk after a meal, your blood sugar is going to be low. Or if you lift weights maybe before a meal, your blood sugar is going to be low. But is, is there anything that's popped up that's been super interesting as far as surprising or unexpected results from people experimenting with what might cause their blood sugar to be low or high? And uh, if so, what are some of the more interesting takeaways that you found? Oh, my gosh. People are doing so many fascinating experiences. It might be one of the most fun parts of this job is to see what people are posting on social media, you know, tagging levels of what they're trying, you know, Wim Hof breathing and cold plunging and, and all sorts of stuff. I'll mention a few of the ones that are sort of my favorite. I will say some of the really basic experiments are, are some of the ones that are most life-changing. You mentioned walking after meals. That's one that we've actually studied in our community at, at a more, at a bigger scale. And it's pretty profound. Um, I'll just mention briefly, we did this study where we sent people cans of 12 ounce cans of Coke. So they basically drank a Coke one morning and then the next morning under hopefully very similar conditions, similar sleep, similar stress levels, et cetera. They drank a Coke and then walked after the Coke, just like a gentle walk. And we actually found that the median glucose rise between a walk and no walk was actually 33%. So the peak went from 162 milligrams per deciliter to an average of 132 milligrams per deciliter. So that's, Mm -hmm. that's like a huge difference. You can imagine over the course of your lifetime, if like, if you're always 30% lower on your glucose spikes, that's pretty monumental. So that was really cool to see. We also, um, we, we just had a member post an amazing reel that she did with levels, basically showing she tried two different breakfasts that were isocaloric. So exact okay. same calories. And one breakfast was eggs, sauteed Brussels sprouts and onion, half an avocado and blueberries. And the okay. next was two pieces of whole grain, gluten-free toast, okay. one tablespoon of peanut butter and three quarters cup of OJ. So a very, like what some people would say is like, oh, that sounds like a sort of healthy breakfast. The eggs, avocado, blueberries, Brussels sprouts, she had a 20 milligram per deciliter rise and was above target for only 45 minutes. 
And with the bread, peanut butter, and just a small cup of OJ, she went up 79 points and was above target for 98 minutes. And so, you know, it just goes to show that like, if you looked at both those breakfasts, there's a lot of people who would say that, that that seems like a reasonable, you know, whole grain toast, peanut butter, a little bit of OJ, but it absolutely threw her glucose like through the roof. So just having like, obviously a more whole foods based protein and fat rich, healthy, healthy protein and fat rich breakfast. She probably could add like scrambled eggs on a glass of orange juice and the orange juice still would have done that. I mean, like, you know, any, any fruit based sugar absent of fiber, even, even like some fruits, like, uh, like grapes and raisins, those are those massively spike blood glucose, like sometimes higher than just like pure sugar. It's crazy because they're just a very sweet fruit without a lot of uh, without a lot of fiber, right? To slow down that release of blood glucose. Yeah, even even like grapes can be an issue, or you know, a glass of wine. It is it is kind of interesting. Now, what what about um what about dairy? Because dairy is very insulinogenic. You know, it's one of those things that seems to be associated in many people with weight gain. Does does dairy seem to spike blood glucose in a lot of people? You know, it's funny. It actually doesn't. And it depends on the dairy source. But like, for instance, a lot of people end up posting on Twitter that they eat ice cream and they don't have a glucose spike and they're so excited. And I think, you know, unfortunately, this is one where it's very, very nuanced because in a sense, ice cream is sort of like this, this balanced meal. It's got protein, fat, no fiber, obviously, but like it's got, it's got carbohydrates, protein, and fat. And so like, it's likely that that protein and fat are offsetting the high sugar. That doesn't necessarily mean it's healthy to eat that sugar, but the thing about dairy, like you said, it's highly insulinogenic. And so the, the dairy proteins are known to potentially spike glucose, like six times higher than other protein sources. And so that does actually cause me a little bit of concern about eating too much dairy because obviously we don't want our insulin to be high. And so it's something that you may see glucose not rising with a dairy-based product, but it might be at the expense of very high insulin levels after that meal. What what if somebody does like a dairy substitute, like like, uh, rice milk or oat milk or almond milk or something like that? Oh my gosh. We actually did an amazing community experiment with oat milk. And unfortunately, it's like the it's like it, the results were not uh, favorable for oat milk. But basically, we, we'd heard reports from members that oat milk was causing really big spikes for them. So we did an experiment with it. We basically had people either have their coffee with oat milk or have their coffee with unsweetened nut milk of any other kind. So like macadamia, uh, almond milk, cashew and, milk. And the oat milk was unsweetened, too. Well, most oat milk technically says unsweetened, but it's, I think it can be a little bit tricky because the way the oats are processed, even if they're not adding refined sugar, the way they're, they're processing the oats does lead to a lot of highly accessible, essentially refined sugar. Uh, It may not be added, but the way the oats are processed can, can essentially make it very glucose spiking. And, and what we saw in this in this study was that for people who had their coffee with oat milk, they had an average glucose spike of 29 milligrams per deciliter. And if they used any other type of unsweetened nut milk, it was nine milligrams per deciliter. And the people who used the oat milk were their average time above range. And our, our top of our range is 110 milligrams per deciliter. They were above range for 42 minutes. And if you used any other type of unsweetened nut milk, it was 11 minutes above range. And so there was, that was one of our experiments that really, I think had the biggest difference. And this was again, to just test some, some anecdotal 
reports that we'd gotten amongst our team and amongst our members and then studying it in a larger group of people, we did see that. So I definitely avoid oat milk, uh, knowing what I know now from our data set. Um, and another interesting one we did was on resistant starches. Um, so essentially this concept of like, if you take a starchy food, like a potato or rice and you eat it fresh out of the stove or oven, yeah. Versus if you take that food and then you cool it and eat it cooled or reheat it. The idea is that some of the carbohydrates in the cooling process actually transform into a form that's indigestible, a resistant starch. Um, and so we had people do this, um, with rice and it was actually quite interesting as well. The people who just ate fresh, hot rice had an average glucose response of about 38 milligrams stress liter. And if they cooled it, it was 26 milligrams yeah. stress liter. So it was pretty, it yeah. was a fairly significant. And these are, of course, these are not super controlled scientific studies, but these, we love to do group experiments with our, our members. And one that you might actually, one other that you might be really like interested in just being an athlete. Um, we're doing a study right now with our members or, or an sort of a group community experiment where people are essentially trying to figure out their exercise threshold that does not spike their glucose. So you may have noticed on your CGM that with high intensity interval training or power lifting or things that are sort of above all out efforts or generally above a VO2 max of about 80%. Yeah. Well, well, to, yeah. to interrupt you quickly, anything stressful, yeah. sauna session, anything that your body gets the message that it needs to run from a lion, you get that transient rise in blood glucose that I've said many times before in a podcast isn't something to be that concerned about because that results in long-term insulin sensitivity and long-term lower blood glucose. It's kind of like, it's kind of like your heart rate, right? When you exercise, your heart rate goes up, but the long-term effect of that is a lower heart rate. That's exactly right. And that's the key point. You know, when you do these high intensity exercises or any, well, when you do the high intensity exercise, you're often going to see your glucose spiking and that's the body feeling like, okay, I'm running really hard. This must be some sort of threat. I need to mobilize glucose to feed the muscles. The the liver actually dumps out glucose for the muscles to use. And you often see a glucose spike with high intensity exercise. And with lower intensity exercise, like zone two, walking, light jogging, we'll often see a decrease in glucose because you're just utilizing, you're not putting your body into a stress response. You're not mobilizing that glucose from the liver and you're just using circulating glucose. Um, and, and so it's going to dip a little bit. So we're having members essentially see at what point do they flip from that more picking up circulating glucose and it dropping. So a low intensity exercise, which is we'd associate more with a fat burning state as well, because the body is going to be more favoring fat oxidation and that lower intensity exercise versus when do you flip into uh, high intensity sort of glucose rising. So for each member, it's going to be a different strenuousness level. Yeah. And, and so that's something that we're trying to study and like figure out whether we can kind of figure out what is sort of like the flip from fat burning threshold to more glucose utilization threshold for an individual member. Yeah. What about gum? In what sense? Like, let's say you're chewing gum. Let's, let's even say it's not gum that has sugar in it, which might cause blood sugar to go up a little bit, I guess. But has anybody done any tests on gum? Because I chew a lot of gum. I have not seen any experiments on that. Have, have you noticed anything with your CGM with gum? Not really. I mean, it, it obviously causes a little bit of a rise in cretin hormones because it's, you know, the taste of something in right. your mouth and your body prepares to digest food. So it's possible that in the similar way that like having bitters before a meal or yeah. apple cider vinegar or cinnamon might lower blood glucose. If there technically is a hormonal response, 
that results in the body's ability to be able to process fuel or calories a little bit more effectively, you could expect it to lower blood glucose. But then again, like if the gum is caffeinated or has nicotine, et cetera, and sympathetically yeah. stimulating, then it raises blood glucose. Yeah. Tough to say. I don't have any data. I was just curious. I got to try it now. <laughs> I know. I'm, I might have to, too, as, as soon as I get my, my freaking sensor to start working. Okay. So that, that covers a few of the surprising things. Uh, now, what about the things that most people probably don't know about? Like we talked about exercise. We talked about cold. I mentioned some of these blood glucose disposal agents like Ceylon cinnamon, apple cider vinegar, mm-hmm. you know, bitter melon extract. We know a lot of those can lower blood glucose. Anything surprising that, that controls blood sugar that you think more people should know about? Yeah. So you hit a lot of them. I think, um, some of the surprising things that will raise glucose is like you said, high intensity exercise, stress, and heat of those three. I don't worry too much about heat or exercise. Cause as you said, the long term, those are going to actually improve insulin sensitivity. Mm-hmm. However, with stress raising blood sugar, that actually, I do think that's probably maladaptive. Yeah. But that's not that surprising for people. I think everybody exactly. knows stress is going to raise it. What about the, the microbiome? I was, I was kind of hoping you yeah. might mention something about that because obviously now people are selling probiotics that they say will lower blood glucose. I have some in my pantry. Yeah. I haven't tested them yet. But apparently, if you, if you have a, levels of a certain bacteria in your gut – you're better able to manage carbohydrates. And furthermore, you know, and and this is super interesting. I did a podcast about this a while ago, that if you're accustomed to eating a high carbohydrate diet, you tend to build up a bacterial profile in the gut that results in your body actually experiencing low blood glucose and energy destabilization unless you feed it carbohydrates, which might factor into this whole idea that a lot of people will have to be on a low carb diet for like eight to 12 months before they really notice that shift in the gut biome and the the shift in the ability to feel good and have adequate energy levels. So what's, what's the link between the gut and the blood sugar? Yeah. I mean, massive link between gut and blood sugar, really more and more research literally every day is coming out showing that what's happening in our gut has a direct impact on our mitochondrial function and our insulin sensitivity and glucose homeostasis. I think on the probiotic front, the the strain that is coming out with the most compelling research, I think for improving metabolic health as like a supplement is acromancia. That might be the one that you, you have, but, but acromancia, um, there's hundreds and hundreds of papers about it basically showing that it has impact on metabolism and general health. And it's been shown in mice to basically improve metabolic disease and improve glucose homeostasis. And the mechanisms for it are thought to be a few things. One is increased thermogenesis. So it actually induces uncoupling proteins in brown fat and may actually make your essentially just like make Mm. you hotter, make your basal metabolic rate higher. It also helps secrete GLP-1, so one of our uh, gut hormones intimately involved in metabolic health, it's a bacteria that lives in the mucin layer of the gut. And we know this mucin layer is so important for gut integrity. And with the diets we're eating today, we're depleting our mucin layer. Um, and so it's it's a mucinophilic gut microbe that really protects that mucin le- uh, layer and it's been shown to like help with maintenance of tight junctions between our colon cells and produces antimicrobial peptides in the gut and really like restores mucin thickness. And so mm. all of that is, of course, so important for like the concept of gut integrity and leaky gut and general inflammation in the body that's related to gut dysfunction. 
And so that's a really promising one that's now being commercialized. There's a mm. company, Pendulum Therapeutics, that's um, selling acromancia. Yeah, I heard about Pendulum. Yeah. Some, somebody mentioned a Dr. William Davis when I interviewed him. We talked a lot about yogurt and specific strains of yogurt like L-Ruteri. It seemed to stabilize blood glucose, and he mentioned the – uh, the, the pendulum company is one that that's relevant. I, I haven't started taking it for two reasons. One, I just haven't got my hands on it, even though I do have a bottle from a different company up in my pantry. I forget the name of it. There's a few now that are making it. And then two, like, you know, full disclosure, like I developed a blood glucose stabilizing supplement that works pretty well for yeah. me that, that Keon sells with the bitter melon extract and chromium and vanadium and astragalus and a few other decently research blood glucose stabilizing agents. So I kind of like just go yeah. with that because I know a guy and I get a good deal <laughs> on it. Uh, so so there there are other things though, like dihydrobarberine is one that my friend uh, Sean Wells swears by as like a form of barberine that works really well. Uh, and then I, I've mentioned this so many times, I'll just, I won't dwell on this, but I have found nothing, nothing to control blood glucose more effectively than a bout of morning cold mm -hmm. thermogenesis. Mm -hmm. And that is why like every day, even throughout the winter, um, cold shower, cold soak, cold body wire, something cold, even a brisk cold walk with wearing limited clothing. Uh, I'm not walking around the neighborhood in my G string, but you know, like, like shorts on and sandals in the winter. Oh my gosh. Like your blood glucose. I've, I've, I've been like in the forties to fifties until like three or 4 PM. If I do a morning cold swim or something like that, it's crazy. It is wild. And you mentioned your supplement. I think that th those like chromium and others, like I think that a key thing, you know, we talk a lot about some of like the more esoteric things that we could use for, for metabolic health, like, you know, berberine and things like that, like cinnamon. But I think one key thing that I think about a lot is like just our basic micronutrients. Like we actually need those to be in a good place in our body for like our electron transport chain, our mitochondria to work properly. Like a lot of these enzymes that are super related to glucose processing and energy ATP production in the body, like in the mitochondria are dependent on micronutrient cofactors, which many Americans are actually depleted in because of our, you know, poor standard American diet. And like some of the key, so, so aside from some of the fancier stuff like acromancia and I take some other mitochondrial support supplements like urolithin A, but even just basic stuff like vitamin D, magnesium, selenium, zinc, B vitamins, yeah. manganese, vitamin C, omega-3s, chromium, like these things are like critical just for like baseline cellular metabolic functioning. And so just making sure people are knowing what micronutrients are key to these processes and then making sure they're getting them in their diet. And if, if they can't like supplementing with them. Um, yeah. so I certainly supplement with like magnesium and vitamin D and omega threes and things like that. Cause I think, especially with what's going on with our you know, conventional farming and our poor soil health in the country, so much of our food is actually more micronutrient deplete than it was 50 or a hundred years ago. So even if you're kind of eating like a perfect whole food diet, you still might be getting uh, fewer of these key micronutrients for metabolic health than you would if you were eating food that was grown on better soil. And that goes for both plants, but also for meat, meat grown, meat that has eaten plants that were grown on good soil have much higher levels of omega-3s and micronutrients and even phytonutrients, which we often think of being only in plants, but actually animals can be a source of phytonutrients, but really only if they're raised on plants that were grown in good soil. So, mm. so just the basics, I think are also a big part of the conversation yeah. too, as much as I also do try some of these other, you know, more advanced things like 
like VitoPure with urolithin A or Acromancia or berberine or things like this. And yeah. then, and then one last thing I think I would mention is just uric acid is like another big piece of this whole metabolic pu- puzzle. Like we know that fructose and high fructose corn syrup raise uric acid levels, which creates mitochondrial oxidative stress and can really create problems with like insulin resistance. Um, and, and Rick Johnson and David Perlmutter both write, wrote books this year on uric acid. Nature wants us to be fat and drop acid. And there's several supplements that actually specifically improve uric acid levels, yeah. which are quercetin, luteolin, tart, tart, cherry, quercetin. I know too. Yep, those are that, yeah. <laughs> quercetin, tart, cherry, luteolin, DHA, vitamin C and chlorella yeah. are the big ones. And so there's just a lot of different tools in the toolbox. And frankly, I take a lot of them <laughs> and, um, and I, I, I find benefit from a lot of it, but I think, you know, food is medicine and like getting the basics of those key micronutrients through like food that's grown in good organic or regenerative soil is that is pretty foundational for just yeah. like the basic cellular physiology. Yeah. Last question. Do you think that there's a possibility like in the future, based on what's in the interstitial fluid, you could like slap a CGM on and it could also be measuring, I don't know, like cortisol or inflammatory markers or lactic acid or something like that? Or is that just like not even something on the radar? It's definitely on the radar. And the exciting thing is that Abbott is actually coming out with three new sensors, uh, which is lactate, alcohol, and ketones. Oh, wow. They're all going to be on separate sensors. So the dream would be right that they're all in one sensor, but it's not, we're not there yet. But I think this is massive progress for the field because I mean, I, I am so excited to have a ketone monitor on one arm a CGM on the other arm, a lactate monitor on my butt, you know, just like, yeah. like, just like be nice knowing if all one sensor things. could do it all though, huh? I know, I know. But th- that's, that's the, called the, um, the Abbott lingo is the new series that's coming out. My absolute dream would be, you know, continuous cytokine monitors, something that measures oxidative stress, you know, ketones, glucose, um, you know, some, some, some sort of byproduct of the microbiome, like short chain fatty acids, just something that can really tell you about what is the actual, like, how is your actual physiology doing under the hood? But we really are believers that, um, that this, this whole concept of continuous biosensors and really having like a movie of what's going on inside your body is the future of healthcare and of patient empowered healthcare, especially because if you understand more about your body and how your choices are impacting your health in real time, which we call biologic observability, you know, you can't control a system that you can't observe. And the more we're being able to observe our own bodies inside, the better it's going to be, I think, for reversing our chronic disease epidemic. So yeah. there's definitely strides being made with like these new sensors. And I think we're going to see vastly more over the next 10 years. And you know, Levels' goal is really to help create the software layer that integrates a lot of these data streams to empower uh, individual human health. It's pretty sweet, and and you know, I, I I dig the app. I'll I'll put our link to it and everything in the show notes. So if people want to sign up and use it, and it's it's super fun. You know, it's it's super fun to test this stuff. I had all sorts of questions about this. You asked them. I'd keep going, but. We're out of time and uh, maybe we'll have to do a round two. But in the meantime, I'm going to link to as many resources as possible. If people go to bangreenfieldlife.com slash glucose, I'll put our special link to levels. I don't know what we have for a link or a code or whatever, but I have something where you save money or get moved to the front of the line or whatever benefits we we worked out. Oh, there we go. At least somebody (laughs) levels.link slash Ben. And so check all that out and, and you too can join the club of strange freaks who look like robots walking around as modern day cyborgs tracking our blood glucose 24 seven. 
you can be part of that cool club too. So bengreenfieldlife.com slash glucose. Casey, thanks so much for coming on and sharing all this stuff with us. I don't, I don't know who else would have been able to answer all my questions other than you. So thank you. Oh, it's an honor. I, I love your content. I so appreciate what you're doing for the world. And I'm so grateful to have, get to have this convo. Awesome. All right, folks. Well, I'm Ben Greenfield. I'm with Casey Means. Signing out from bengreenfieldlife.com. Have an amazing week. More than ever these days, people like you and me need a fresh, entertaining, well-informed, and often outside-the-box approach to discovering the health and happiness and hope that we all crave. So I hope I've been able to do that for you on this episode today. And if you liked it, or if you love what I'm up to, then please leave me a review on your preferred podcast listening channel, wherever that might be. And just find the Ben Greenfield Life episode. Say something nice. Thanks so much. It means a lot.